to give you a breakdown in the entrance, in the intro, I should say. Do I even need to do that? My guess is no. (laughs) You know what we're going to lead the show with. Um, Huge news in regards to Mueller. Um, I will be talking about that for probably mm, at least 30 minutes in the beginning here, so if you don't want to hear that, tune out and then come back. (laughs) But my guess is many of you want to hear it. Um, There's a lot of stuff to talk about. A lot of different angles to the story, important angles to the story. So we will be diving headfirst into all that. Later on in the show, once we get past the Mueller stories, Joe Biden's campaign is flailing and it hasn't even officially started yet. He's got two tricks up his sleeve that he's trying in uh, the desperate hopes that Uh, You will like him. We have uh, John, the breakfast cereal Hickenlooper, making an ass of himself. I've been chomping at the bit to cover this story. Now we finally are able to cover this story. Uh, I think all of you know what it is. I went in on Twitter on this particular story. Um, President Trump made an absolutely insane decision that's honestly not his to make in regards to Israel and Syria. Um... You're not going to want to miss that story. It it shows, like, you know, example number 14,312 of things that the Democrats should be screaming about, but mum's the word. And uh, it's really frustrating because this is, uh, I mean, genuinely destabilizing, apart from being flat-out illegal without giving away too much here. And um, also, the DCCC is undermining progressive candidates, which probably comes as no surprise to any of you, but uh, there are some new specifics in regards to rules they're laying down, where they basically say, if you're on the left, you can go fuck yourself. So anyway, without further ado, let's get started. Let me pull up uh, my first 
little video clip here in regards to Mueller. Um, <clears throat> it's a CNN clip. I think, if I'm not mistaken, this is when this is when the news officially broke. You're going to see this is like the the patient zero moment. This is getting in at the ground level and uh, watching all the reactions in real time. So let's do it. So some big news on the Mueller investigation broke uh, about two days ago now, but news has been rolling in consistently ever since then about more specifics. There will be no more indictments coming. So obviously this has made many Democrats very upset, many Democrats who've, uh, you know, invested a lot of time and energy into Mueller, thinking Mueller would effectively be the anti-Trump savior. It appears like that's not going to be the case. I want to show you, this is a CNN clip here. This is when the news first broke. You're going to hear them break it down, and I think some of the reactions are pretty interesting. Well, one big piece of news that we've just received here is the special counsel, Robert Mueller, is not recommending any further indictments. Now, obviously, that's a significant development, as there have been many looming questions out there, many uh, <laughs> open question marks, I should really say, about whether we would see any more, any superseding indictments, but I am told no further recommendations of any indictments whatsoever. So it is not as if when we see the uh, principal conclusions that Bill Barr eventually submits his distillation to Congress that we will see any mention of any recommendations of any indictments. I'm told that that is not happening, so we can put to rest that speculation once and for all, Wolf. It does, that doesn't necessarily mean that other U.S. attorneys in the Southern District of New York or the U.S. attorney here in Washington, D.C. or Northern Virginia, they can pursue legal action, right? Absolutely, and we should make that point that there are certainly been spin-offs, so to speak, from much of Mueller's work. We've seen him already farming out certain cases here uh, to the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, also uh, the Eastern District of Virginia, and of course the Southern District of New York, which is handling the Michael Cohen investigation. So we've seen outputs from his investigation, uh, but we are not going to receive any further recommendations from Mueller about the core uh, work of his mandate, which was Russian interference in the election, obstruction of justice, all of those issues were really central to what he was put here to do. No further indictments on that front, Wolf. From the, uh, from the special counsel. Uh, but uh, presumably some of those who were brought before grand jury, some individuals who have not been indicted, they can't necessarily completely you know, breathe easily because there could be indictments coming from these other U.S. attorneys. Well, certainly anybody who has currently been before a grand jury, anybody who has lied, they are certainly in jeopardy. That is, that is certainly not uh, off the table here. But in terms of any fresh indictments, any fresh investigative work, that has all been put to rest. Can we well, I mean, you know, let's be specific. This is really good news yeah. for yeah. a lot of people yeah. around Donald Trump. Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, uh, Jerome Corsi. Um, the writer who had a draft indictment presented to him by uh, Mueller's office, and they decided not to go forward with this. I mean, this is, you know, let, let's be fair here. I mean, you know, there has right. been a lot of suspicion around uh, certain people, and a lot of, you know, negative things have been said, an imputation of criminal activity, and, and, and uh, uh, Mueller has said, 
I am not proceeding, and it is th- there is no better news hmm. to receive than you are not being indicted well, by well, the United Jeffrey, States. Jeffrey, uh, you once uh, worked as a prosecutor. So when the senior justice official tells Laura Jarrett the special counsel is not recommending any further indictments, can we conclude there, are, there have been no sealed indictments that uh, would be unsealed at some point down the road? Well, I, 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 yeah, boy, Wolf, you're like a lawyer. Interesting <laughs> question. I, I, I think the answer is uh, you, we can we can assume that. I mean, we uh, that is a very good follow-up question. But I think that would be very coy um, if you know no further indictments. That that right. you know in plain that's English that's, it's, it means to me yeah. that that's there are no further. Or let me ask Laura yeah. Jarrett that same question, Law Laura. Uh, as, and if you're reporting, the special counsel is recommending, uh, not recommending any further indictments. As far as you know, have there been sealed indictments that potentially down the road, for whatever reason, could be unsealed? Wolf, I was channeling you. I asked that very same question. <laughs> I pressed them at length, sealed, unsealed, in any form. You're telling me this is not coming down the pipe in any way in the coming weeks and months, and I was told unequivocally, no, it's done. So no more indictments, no more sealed indictments, no collusion, no obstruction, because understand, even if there was the appearance of Trump obstructing, and of course there was with what he did with Comey, among many other things, that's not the same as proving it in a legal framework. It's not the same thing, and you have to prove intent on that front, and they can't establish that. So no obstruction, and also... No recommendation of impeachment. So, now let me give you some more information on this. Uh, This is from USA Today, some more specifics. The investigation led by Robert S. Mueller III found that neither President Trump nor any of his aides conspired or coordinated with the Russian government's 2016 election interference according to a summary of the special counsel's findings made public on Sunday by Attorney General William P. Barr. Now, let me pause there for a second. Some people are saying, well, William Barr is like a Republican hack, a pro-Trump hack, so his summary of it is not legit. To which my response is, you think Robert Mueller would sit there quietly as the Attorney General is basically totally mischaracterizing the findings of his report? The answer is no. Robert Mueller will come out and say that's not an accurate summary of what I've put in the report. So obviously it is an accurate summary because Mueller hasn't come out and said you're mischaracterizing it. So what a weird deflection from people who are like really obsessed, admired in the most extreme interpretation of Russiagate. Uh, Let me continue. The summary also said that the special counsel's team lacked sufficient evidence to establish that President Trump illegally obstructed justice but added that Mr. Mueller's team stopped short of exonerating Mr. Trump. While this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him, Mr. Barr quoted Mr. Mueller as writing. All right, let me pause there, too. So, in other words, there's no evidence to bring him down on any of this stuff and to get any more indictments, but I'm not going to say that he's exonerated. So this is, that one line is going to be beaten to death by people who want to hang on to the most extreme interpretation of Russiagate. And they're going to say, well, he wasn't exonerated, so what does that mean? It means we were kind of right all along. Well, no, because if you were right, there would have been a plethora of evidence there, and he would have been able to take further action. 
So that's kind of misleading when people are trying to put that part front and center because, listen, there wasn't enough evidence to go further. So when there's not enough evidence, usually what that means is they can't prove it. And usually what that means is it didn't happen. Now, that, that line is to give people enough wiggle room to say, well, maybe it did and we just can't see it because there's no evidence of it. Okay, well, you know, congratulations. I hope, you're, uh, I hope uh, you like the fact that you consider yourself rational, reasonable, objective, empirical, and you're willing to believe something without evidence. Let's continue. The Russia investigation has uh, buffeted the White House from the earliest days of the Trump administration with numerous current and former aides to Mr. Trump uh, brought for questioning to the special counsel's warren of offices in a plain office building in downtown Washington. FBI agents spanned out across the nation and traveled to numerous foreign countries. Witnesses were questioned by members of Mr. Mueller's team at airports upon landing in the United States. Ultimately, a half dozen former Trump aides were indicted or convicted of crimes, most for conspiracy or lying to investigators. 25 Russian intelligence operatives and experts in social media manipulation were charged last year into extraordinarily detailed indictments released by the special counsel. The inquiry concluded uh, without charging any Americans for conspiring with the Russian campaign. Okay, so some more numbers on what has already happened in the Mueller investigation. Take a look at this. Five people have been sentenced to prison. One person has been convicted at trial. Seven people pleaded guilty. 37 uh, people and entities charged, overall criminal counts 199. Now, again, for the so-called Russian interference in the election, all they have, all they have is a troll farm, a troll farm that had very minimal impressions. The total number of impressions from the troll farm is like less than secular talk gets in a couple days. So they had a troll farm which posted pictures of like, a muscular cartoon version of Bernie Sanders. That's the Russian interference in the election. And what they're saying is, oh yeah, we indicted the troll farm, which shows there was obviously you know, Russian interference, but okay, we couldn't establish any connection between Donald Trump or even Trump's team and Russia. So listen, you know, I'm, of course I, I can't, get out of this segment without saying I told you so, but has it ever been more deserved? I told you so. And I'm going to get to a compilation in a little bit. I'm not going to do it in this segment because this segment is more about just getting the facts out of the way and telling everybody exactly what's been discovered and what hasn't been discovered. But um, I was warning everybody, my, my line I kept coming back to was you're not going to get President Trump on treason. You're not going to get him on being Putin's puppet. You're not going to get them on collusion. You're not going to get them on conspiracy. Uh, And, you know, some people would ask, like, oh, how did you know that? Well, because there was no evidence of that. No evidence of that any step of the way. And everything that people tried to claim was evidence, they were just obviously mischaracterizing stuff and extrapolating and reading between the lines. And listen, I said it once. I'll say it again. I'll say it a million more times. Is Donald Trump a deeply corrupt business person? Yes. Is Donald Trump guilty of violating the emoluments clause of the Constitution? Yes. Um, Is Donald Trump basically doing the bidding of the Israeli government and the Saudi government? Yes. Is is Donald Trump or has Donald Trump at different times in his um, life 
has he done money laundering, bank fraud, um, and a, a plethora of other financial crimes? Yes. I mean, he went literally had to pay a fine for fraud, had to pay it out to people who he hoodwinked with his shitty, fake Trump university. So I'm saying all this to let everybody know. There are roughly 19,716 legitimate anti-Trump arguments and legitimate anti-Trump arguments specifically in regards to the law. And you can, you can go after him in a legal framework. But that doesn't mean that anything you can theoretically come up with, you know, means he's, guil- he's guilty of that. Because that's not true. And when they came up with this conspiracy theory of like, oh, Donald Trump is Vladimir Putin's puppet, and he's obviously working uh, for him, and he did collusion, and he's like this Manchurian candidate, just look at the policies he's done in regards to Russia. It immediately debunks that theory. And if you're willing to be open and honest about this, if you're willing to be objective about this, you'd admit that right away. Let me tell you something. The guy is not under Vladimir Putin's thumb if he arms Ukrainian rebels who are fighting Russia. He's not under Vladimir Putin's thumb if he did a NATO buildup on Russia's border. He's not under Putin's thumb if he sent U.S. warships to the Black Sea. He's not under Putin's thumb if he was berating Germany every other day because they have an oil deal with Russia and he wants to axe that oil deal so that Germany can do an oil deal with the United States. And the list goes on and on. We're permanently militarily occupying Syria. You think Vladimir Putin wants the world's sole superpower uh, permanently stationed in a place where he's the main ally? No. But all of this evidence was swept aside, swept aside, I should say sweeps, is that even a word? Swept aside. And people are like, I don't know. I mean, I hear Rachel Maddow talking a lot about how there's some creepy stuff with Trump and Russia. So maybe the most extreme interpretation of this conspiracy theory is true, and Donald Trump is some sort of Manchurian candidate. I mean, honestly, it's comical, man. Now, again, to give a different example, when you look at Israel and when you look at Saudi Arabia, you literally won't find a single policy that this administration has pursued that's against the interests of those countries. Also, Jared Kushner took a tremendous amount of money, millions of dollars from Israeli banks. When it comes to Saudi Arabia, Donald Trump at his hotels or at his hotel specifically in Washington, D.C., actually, has taken hundreds of thousands of dollars from the Saudi government at his hotel, and then he turns around and gives them a multi-billion dollar weapons deal and gives them whatever they want, and looks the other way when they murder Jamal Khashoggi, a journalist, and looks the other way as they do a genocide in Yemen. There's a mountain of evidence. If you wanted to accuse Trump of being a puppet of anybody, it's Israel and Saudi Arabia. A mountain of evidence to prove that. But they, nobody talked about that. Nobody brought that up. Everybody was obsessed with Russia, and it took a mind of its own, man. It, it, it became like this, this narrative that was unfalsifiable to many people. And listen, me, I'm not even necessarily that mad at the Democratic politicians on this, because if you look at the midterm elections, they didn't even run on it. So the Democratic politicians kind of pulled back at the last minute and said, okay, what are we doing here? But the, the people I am mad at, all of mainstream media, all of mainstream media, because they were the ones who were leading this charge. They basically put all of their eggs in the Mueller-Trump-Russia collusion basket. And then now that it didn't come to pass, 
they look like a bunch of idiots. And now Trump gets to turn around and say, rightly, witch hunt. Now, again, the other aspects of the Mueller investigation, like all the other, like getting Manafort, getting Flynn, and, and knocking off people in his administration one by one, I think that's all wonderful, and I think it's worth it. And there are legit crimes there. That's all fine and dandy. But you have to understand, the main focus of the media was not the run-of-the-mill corruption and financial crimes happening within the Trump administration. Because if they were focusing on that, I wouldn't be objecting to what they're saying, because all that stuff is true. Their main focus was Trump-Russia collusion. So they took the most extreme interpretation of Russiagate. They pushed that nonstop. Now it comes up empty, and now they look like a bunch of dickheads. And Trump gets to turn around and go, I told you, witch hunt. No collusion, witch hunt. And uh, congratulations. So you guys made Trump look like a victim, and now he gets to do a victory lap. Now, the final point is this. There's so much stuff that you could focus, um, you know, even if you wanted to stay with the, the theories of, oh, my God, backroom dealings, you know, Trump not beholden to the American people, you have emoluments to talk about. So why did, I mean, people, there are people in this country, probably the majority of the American people, if you ask them, what are emoluments? They'd be like, imagine if all the energy that was wasted saying Trump did collusion with Russia. Imagine if all of that energy was, was put into discussing the real as a heart attack emoluments cases against Donald Trump. So for those of you who don't know what that is, basically there's a, there's a, a clause in the Constitution called the Emoluments Clause, where it basically says uh, the president cannot take money from foreign governments. Um, and, of course, Donald Trump has taken a tremendous amount of money from foreign governments from a variety of foreign governments. And then, of course, he turns around and does favors for them in regards to policy. That's unconstitutional, very clearly so, because now a president is more likely to set policy for, you know, these countries that are paying him and not for the best interests of the American people. So... There are multiple emoluments cases going through the court system right now, and two of them have actually gone past the, the, the first hurdle. Like, it, judges have ruled, oh, this case 100% has merit, and it may proceed. So there's a real case for, even if you're on the t side of impeachment, which, again, there's an open question as to the wisdom of that, but even if you're on that team, the emoluments case is 8,000 times stronger than the fucking Trump-Russia collusion and they, nobody even spoke about the emoluments case. So there's still stuff to talk, you know, about Trump and backroom deals and, you know, sexy conspiracies. There's still stuff to talk about. And they didn't talk about the ones that actually make sense. And understand, I told you guys, and I predicted it, that you're not going to get Trump on collusion or treason or conspiracy or any of this stuff. I told you. I warned you. But what else did I say? You can relax. You can breathe easy. Because I guarantee you... The day Donald Trump is no longer president, whether that's in 2020 or 2024, whatever it may be, he will be indicted on multiple financial crimes. And I still think that's the case today. I've already been proven right on step one. No, no further indictments, no uh, Trump-Russia collusion. Now step two is when he gets out of office, the investigation in the Southern District of New York, that investigation they're going to have a lot of dirt on him, and they can actually, I think, successfully go after him on that front. And the other thing is this, guys. you got to understand, in order to – it's an open legal question as to whether or not you can indict a sitting president. That's an open legal question. 
you know, most legal experts say you can only impeach a sitting president. And in order to impeach a sitting president, they would have had to have over-the-top evidence, basically proof, and still it would have been a miracle given that to even convince some Republicans to say, yeah, okay, well, obviously we need to go after this guy, and obviously we need to impeach this guy. But furthermore, in order to impeach, it has to be a crime that's committed in office. In office. Now, for the stuff that's in the Southern District of New York, New York case, that's all crimes that predate his time as president. So you wouldn't, even if you were to prove money laundering and ties to the mafia and, you know, uh, tax evasion and, and, and bank fraud, even if you're able to prove all that, which I think you can, that w- would not transfer to we can impeach him over this because he did not commit those specific crimes while in office. So that's why I've always said the investigation in the Southern District of New York that's going after his financial crimes, that's the real deal Holyfield. And that's what you're really going to get him on. Now, I thought there was a chance that Mueller might, you know, get Don Jr., for example, or some of them, uh, some people who are even closer in Trump's inner circle on further financial crimes. But ultimately, I told you, you're not going to get collusion. You're not going to get treason. You're not going to get some sort of grand conspiracy. And I was proven right. But uh, just understand, because there's going to be a lot of, like, deflection and obfuscating and rationalizing and explaining away coming in the next, you know, week or so from uh, media folks who were wrong. And there's going to be a lot of arguments of, like, oh, Mueller didn't focus on the right thing or, you know, why didn't this happen? Yeah, the dude who had the backing of the U.S. government and the dude who had two years and basically an an unlimited budget to look at every angle of this thing. Yeah, he somehow missed it. You know, armchair pontificators. Yeah, he he somehow wasn't able to find the thing that was right in front of his face. No, it's that, like I said, the most extreme interpretation of the Russiagate theory, the collusion theory, always had no evidence for it. Whereas there's a tremendous amount of evidence for money laundering, for all these financial crimes, and people should have been focusing on that all along. And actually, to be clear, they shouldn't have focused on that primarily. The main focus of the Democrats, the main focus of the media, should have always been policy. That's how you defeat Donald Trump. Talk about how he's a rabid, foaming-at-the-mouth neocon who's increasing all of our wars. Talk about how he's done deregulation of Wall Street and cut taxes for the rich, which are disastrous for this country. Talk about how he hasn't gotten an infrastructure deal. Talk about all the, the serious policy-related issues, the fact that Goldman Sachs is all throughout his administration and he's not looking out for the regular guy. Talk about how 93,000 jobs have been outsourced. Policy should have been front and center with Democratic politicians and with the media. And then secondary to that should have been the investigation that, that is incredibly real, which is into all of his financial crimes. So really the biggest fail here was among the media class. And now, I guarantee you, I've already seen it. I've already seen it. They're already deflecting. And by the way, credit to Glenn Greenwald, Jimmy Dore, Rania Kalik, Aaron Mate, Michael Tracy, Max Blumenthal, Ben Norton, George, Jordan Sheridan, and Matt Taibbi, among others. Forgive me if I miss some. Um, because these are the people who all along have not gone along with the hysteria and have not said, oh, obviously the most extreme interpretation of this is true, and he's a Putin puppet. And I mean, again, all it took was a minimal amount of objectivity to know that that was nonsense, because all you had to do was look at the policies in regards to Russia and find that the majority of them are anti-Russia and even more hawkish than Obama. So by definition, he can't be a puppet, because he, if he is a puppet, he's literally the worst puppet in the world. <laughs> Because doing the opposite of what the puppet master wants him to do.
So credit to all these people for being objective all throughout. And by the way, it was not easy. It was not easy. Because every time there was an unrelated to the main claim, um, you know, advancement in the case, like when they went after Manafort and Flynn and whatnot, we would all get bombarded with tweets like, aha, fucking idiots, you're wrong. <laughs> to which the response is, no, we, none of us ever said that you're not going to get the people around Trump. None of us ever said they weren't corrupt. None of us ever said you're not going to get them on unrelated charges, which is exactly what happened. But what we did say is the main theory of Trump-Russia collusion or conspiracy or treason is not going to happen. And we were right. And we were right. Now, before everybody says, oh, hold on, the entire um, report isn't released, Kyle. Number one, I want it to be released, 100%, and I, it probably will at some point be released. But number two, the crux of the whole thing is he, they say no evidence of Trump-Russia collusion. That's what they say. They say, oh, we can't exonerate, but there's no evidence of it. Uh, and then also, you know, most important point, no more indictments. No more indictments. No more indictments. Not recommending impeachment. No evidence of Trump-Russia collusion. That's the exact thing we've been saying all along. All along. And you remember who's right and who's wrong. Because, you know, Rachel Maddow, for example, oh my God, you want to talk about embarrassing. She pinned her whole show and all of her hopes on the Mueller investigation, and now the Mueller investigation goes up in flames for their central claim. And what do you do now? I'll tell you what you, they do now. Well, by the way, all it would take for any of these people to get respect is for them to say, you know what? We were wrong in our interpretation of what happened with Mueller. We were wrong. We assumed the worst case scenario, the most extreme scenario of Trump being a Putin puppet and doing collusion. That part is just not true. It's just objectively not true. Now, are there other things you can go after Trump for? Yes. But on the main claim, we were wrong. But here's the other ways in which I think we were ultimately correct. If they said that, man, I would, I'd be like, okay, good, good for you, at least admitting the core of it. But I guarantee you, most of them, if not all of them, are not going to do that. They're immediately going to go to rationalize, deflect, obfuscate, accuse Mueller of being part of some sort of conspiracy now, uh, accuse Mueller of, he didn't look at the right things. Right, yeah, he spent two years with his fucking thumb up his ass looking under that rock when he should have looked under that rock. I mean, come on, man. Come on. So uh, they're not going to own up to it. And then meanwhile, yet again, I'll say it again, co-founder of Justice Democrats here, Justice Democrats got elected all over the place. Was I ever invited on TV to say, how did you guys do it? What was your theory behind this? What was your philosophy? How did this work so well when you guys had no money, no power, you were nobody, and then all of a sudden, now we got a Justice Democrats caucus. Wow, that's kind of crazy. Can you please tell us your secret? No invites to talk about that. Guarantee you on this front, no invites. Hey, you're a lefty. You're a committed lefty who's been saying from day one they're not going to get Trump on collusion with Russia. How did you get it right? Not going to happen. In fact, I will be further marginalized now. Guarantee you. Now they're even less likely to have me on air. Guarantee you. So just know, your media is broken. The system is broken. They just gave Trump a giant political win and it is beyond pathetic. Okay. Now we go to my compilation of me getting it right. So the news about Mueller was pretty much exactly what I expected and what I've been warning you about. And um, yes, now it's time for me to gloat and show you all of my old comments. And um, 
show you how I've been right all along, despite the fact that I've gotten a tremendous amount of shit, even from people who are nominally on our side. So here's a compilation of what I said. He's not really afraid of the Russia investigation because they're not their central claim of like treason or collusion or conspiracy or whatever. That's not going to come through, and that's what I've been telling you from the beginning that that's not going to happen. When the event investigation originally launched, I said you're not going to find treason, you're not going to find collusion. Um, that didn't happen. That's not going to be there, and it's honestly silly that. We're even having the conversation, never mind launching an investigation over it. Um, but the Mueller investigation became real as a heart attack when the articles started pouring in about how Mueller expanded it beyond the question of treason or collusion, and it just became an investigation into Donald Trump's financial dealings and his businesses. So generally speaking, I'd say I support what Robert Mueller is doing but I support what Robert Mueller is doing because I think he can basically take out one by one Trump's cabinet on crimes like that. So, for example, what he's already done with Flynn, what he's already done with Manafort, like I support that stuff. And there's a, a lot of evidence uh, of the guilt of various actors in uh, Trump's administration. But I just think that the idea of Trump being Putin's puppet or Trump doing treason is basically a liberal pipe dream that's equivalent to democratic Benghazi, because you're never going to get Trump on treason. You're never going to get Trump on being Putin's puppet, uh, nor do I actually think he is those things. The collusion stuff of like, oh, Donald Trump specifically working with uh, Russia. No, I mean, if that's the case, he wouldn't have had to announce the thing he wanted them to do in a press conference, because he would have had a direct line to them. Instead, he was talking and shooting from the hip and saying, oh, Russia, go get Hillary Clinton's deleted emails if you can, please, believe me. Unbelievable. And then they did it. So would you need to have this, you know, very open, very public pronouncement of that if you are, like, working behind the scenes with Russian intelligence operatives? No, you just tell them behind the scenes. Like, oh, here's what I want you to do, and I definitely don't want anybody to know that I'm telling you this, but here's what I want you to do. No, he said it in public. And, uh, again, to me, I I'm a policy guy, so it always comes back to policy for me. And when you have Donald Trump arming Ukrainian rebels who are currently fighting Russia, when you have the U.S. permanently militarily occupying Syria, as we're doing right now, remember Syria is one of Putin's uh, top allies, when you have U.S. warships in the Black Sea right on Russia's border, as we do right now, when you have increasing sanctions as we've seen repeatedly from the White House, it's hard for me to look at that. Oh, and the other thing is he spent all last week ripping Germany because Germany has an oil deal with Russia, and he was trying to blow up that oil deal so that the U.S. gets that oil deal with Germany. He was saying Germany's a puppet of Russia, and the reason he was saying that, it wasn't projection like, no, I'm the puppet of Russia, so now I'm going to accuse Germany of being the puppet of Russia. No, he was accusing him of being a puppet of Russia because of their oil deal with Russia, and Trump wants that oil deal to come to the U.S. So if you're a puppet of that guy, then why would you try to blow up his business dealings and benefit your own business dealings? Because he's not a puppet of that guy. Trump is as corrupt as it gets. His, the people around him are as corrupt as it gets. We, we have so many examples of this, whether it be money laundering, whether it be 
um, working together with other governments, Saudi Arabia, Israel. But when it comes to Russia, the policies are simply not benefiting Russia, so it's hard to imagine him being a, a puppet of Russia. They should do it because we need to find out if the president is working for us or working for a different country. You're abandoning the money laundering thing you said, though, because originally you said, well, look, this is really just about money laundering. But now you just said, like, no, we need to keep investigating to see if he's working for a foreign country. Now, when I hear that, I think that's really goofy, and that's not what's happening. He's not Putin's puppet. What this means is that I think it's a total, complete, and utter pipe dream of corporate Democrats to say, oh, you're going to get Trump on being some sort of Manchurian candidate who did treason, who, like, really? A guy who literally was tweeting the other day threatening nuclear war, that guy is somehow under the thumb and being controlled by a nefarious foreign actor. I got news for you, not a single person on the fucking planet can control that madman. So, no, he's not Putin's puppet, he didn't do treason, you know, it, it's not, there, there's not a foreign agent who's in control of the United States at the moment. I think that's a, a corporate Democrat pipe dream where they get Trump on something like that. But what's real as a heart attack is they can get him on financial crimes. I think every part of that was correct. And even the part about, oh, they can get him on financial crimes, again, there's another investigation happening in the Southern District of New York going into all of the things that I think are incredibly real, tax evasion, bank fraud, uh, money laundering, stuff like that. And I've I, I predicted, and I'll say it again, Donald Trump, when, the day he's no longer president, he will be indicted on a variety of financial crimes. So my first, the first prediction I made of they're not going to get Trump on collusion or treason or conspiracy or anything like that, that came true. The second prediction is the day Trump's no longer president, he will be indicted. Actually, I shouldn't be as hard on that in terms of like literally the first day. I should say within the first year of him stepping down, he will be indicted on financial crimes. There we go. Clarify on that front. Um, but this is not me showing you this. Yes, I am uh, bragging, and that's obvious. But it's more about not that I'm so great. It's that mainstream media is so bad. Because I don't find this hard to, like, this isn't difficult. It, you know, show this, um, show this compilation to Jimmy Dore. Show it to Glenn Greenwald, and they'll be like, yeah, <laughs> duh. But it, the fact of the matter is, virtually all of CNN, virtually all of MSNBC, and many new media outlets, too, were really pushing this idea, the most extreme interpretation of, of this idea, that, no, Donald Trump colluded with the Russian government and he's effectively Vladimir Putin's puppet. When, again, just a basic review of the facts of the matter immediately debunk that and disprove it. Like I said in, in one of the older clips that you saw there, Donald Trump armed Ukrainian rebels who are fighting Russia. Would Vladimir Putin want that to happen? Donald Trump uh, did a NATO buildup on Russia's border. Does Vladimir Putin want that to happen? Donald Trump sent U.S. warships to the Black Sea, right by Russia. Is that something Putin wants to happen? Donald Trump was pressuring Germany to axe the Russian oil deal because he wanted that oil deal to come to the U.S. Is that what Putin would want? Um, lose a tremendous amount of money in an oil deal? Why would his puppet try to tank his own oil deal? That's not something a puppet master would want his puppet to do. Uh, they, Donald Trump just pulled out of the nuclear treaty that we had with Russia. It was one of the crowning achievements of the end of the Cold War. Is that what Vladimir Putin wants? No. 
Donald Trump is permanently occupying Syria, and he did escalation in Syria, even though he pretended like, oh, we're going to get out. He didn't do that. They escalated over there. So why would Vladimir Putin want his top geopolitical foe, the U.S., to permanently militarily occupy his ally? That's not what he wants. Look at the policy in Venezuela. We're trying to do regime change to get rid of Maduro. That's the opposite of what Vladimir Putin wants. So you can't say he's his puppet when the overwhelming majority of his policies in regards to Russia are against the interests of Russia. So it's, again, this stuff was fucking obvious, man. And remember, this is coming from a guy who has repeatedly stated, Donald Trump is a career criminal. Donald Trump is guilty of corruption. Donald Trump has done the bidding of the Israeli government and the Saudi government. Um, Donald Trump is guilty of money laundering and, and bank fraud and financial crimes out the wazoo. And, you know, there's so much to attack him on, but you gave him a giant political victory because you chose something that happens to be fundamentally untrue, and you put all your eggs in that basket. And now he gets to go around and say, it's a witch hunt. I told you it was a witch hunt. No collusion. No more indictments. Tremendous. And it's just, this really goes to show you. With Donald Trump, people in mainstream media, they just lost their minds in regards to Trump. They lost their minds. It broke their ability to reason <laughs> because they thought, I don't, I don't know, say anything you want against him, and I'll think it's just by default true because he's so evil and bad that the most comical comic book villain interpretation of events is the one that I'm going to go with despite the fact that there's no evidence for it. Shouldn't have done it, man. Really, really, really shouldn't have done it. It's such a hilarious ironic twist that the people who were focusing on this the most because they thought it'd get them their biggest anti-Trump win, they're actually the ones who helped Trump. And ironically, it's people like me and Jimmy Dore and Glenn Greenwald, among others, who were accused of, why are you guys helping Trump? Why are you guys going soft on Trump? Our argument all along was, no, it's the opposite. The reason why we're telling you don't go with the most extreme interpretation of Russiagate, saying he did collusion and he's Putin's puppet. The reason we're telling you that is because it's not true, and it's going to help him, because it looks like there's now a giant media conspiracy against him, and he gets to scream fake news, and he gets to scream witch hunt, and he gets to scream no collusion, and he ends up being right about it. And meanwhile, the entire time, you could have been screaming about how Donald Trump is, is a disaster who just deregulated Wall Street, which is going to lead to our next crash. He just did a tax cut where 83% of the benefits went to the top 1% over a decade. He just escalated in all of our uh, foreign wars where we're bombing eight countries and we're doing it right now, um, he just uh, tried to push through a health care bill that had a fucking 12% approval rating. Three million people lost health care under his administration because of his anti-Obamacare executive orders. He's colluded with predatory payday uh, loan industry and made it so that they get to charge whatever they want. He dropped the cases against them. There were cases against the predatory payday loan industry because they're fucking liars and criminals. And he scrapped the cases and said, go ahead, you keep doing whatever you're doing and screwing people over. There's so much to attack him on, and none of that was brought up in mainstream media. None of it. All the focus was on, oh my God, he's Putin's puppet. And it just shows you how bad these people are at their jobs. They're objectively shitty. And now they're going to distract and deflect and obfuscate, and downplay, and act like, well, you see, um, dude, I mean, still, it was still great, like, we still nailed it, what, no, you didn't, no, you didn't, 
Now, all the other uh, things that Mueller did, I told you I support, and I still support, of course, getting Flynn, getting Manafort. Uh, you know, the only one that I thought was weird as fuck was going after the Russian troll farm because that had next to no impressions and it really had no impact on anything. And they considered that Russian interference, which was just silly. It's just a troll farm for making money like any other fucking troll farm. But outside of that, yeah, everything Mueller did was, was fine. So the problem here is not Mueller. Uh, and the problem here, honestly, is not even Democratic politicians that much because they didn't focus much on this. The problem is the fucking media. The media botched this from day one and kept botching it and kept digging their own grave. And every time somebody came along with a good faith criticism like Glenn Greenwald when he detailed all the exaggerations and lies and misleading things that people had said on this, they laughed at him and they scoffed at him and they treated him like he was a crazy person for basically just doing the bare minimum of journalistic integrity and saying, hey man, you guys are wrong about this, wrong about this, wrong about this. All the mistakes are in one direction and it, that shouldn't be the case and I'm here to correct you and I'm here to say, hey, you got this wrong. But instead of Instead of taking that, digesting it, and course correcting, they double down, they triple down, and now they're going to fucking quadruple down, and there's going to be no reckoning here, nobody's going to get fired, and it's going to be exactly, the fallout from this is going to be exactly like WMDs, 100%. You know, the intelligence agencies were wrong and led us into war, and the government lied, and the media went right along, and now we have uh, two years of a narrative that was fundamentally untrue, and there's going to be no, nobody's going to be held accountable or anything. And people like me who got it right, none of us are going to be, oh, shit, this guy knows what he's talking about. Quick, get him in, give him an interview or something. Let's, uh, let's hear him out. Let's see what he had to say. How the hell did you get this right when you're a lefty? And, and the, you know, the Democratic side, certainly in the media, was all melting down and saying it's obviously true. How did you get this right? Well, they're not going to ask that question, and they don't want to know the answer to that question because that would require integrity, something they don't have. Okay. All right, now let's go to Trump's response to the Mueller report. So, uh, we got the final report on the Mueller report. The full report hasn't been released yet. I hope it will be in the near future. But we have the summary of the final report. And what we know as a matter of fact is they found no evidence of collusion and there will be no more indictments. So that's a pretty big deal. Um, it certainly vindicates Trump in the sense that the most extreme conspiracy theory against him of him as some sort of Manchurian candidate is just fundamentally untrue. I told you guys it was untrue. It wasn't that hard to find out that that was the truth. Um, but now Donald Trump comes out and of course he's going to take his victory lap because um, he was vindicated. So here he is and watch and then we'll talk about it. So after a long look, after a long investigation, after so many people have been so badly hurt, after not looking at the other side, where a lot of bad things happened, a lot of horrible things happened, a lot of very bad things happened for our country, it was just announced there was no collusion with Russia, the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. There was no collusion with Russia. There was no obstruction and none whatsoever. And it was a complete and total exoneration. It's a shame 
that our country had to go through this. To be honest, it's a shame that your president has had to go through this for before I even got elected. It began. And it began illegally. And hopefully somebody's going to look at the other side. This was an illegal takedown that failed. And hopefully somebody's going to be looking at the other side. So it's complete exoneration, no collusion, no obstruction. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, to be crystal clear, the report actually doesn't say there's no exoneration. The report says there's no evidence of Trump-Russia collusion. Now, literally, in reality, that exonerates him on that point, literally. If you're saying there's no evidence, so I can't go after him for this, then what you're saying is he's exonerated. Basically, they're trying to walk a fine line where they say, hey, maybe it's true, we just don't have the evidence. Well, no, lack of evidence means it's not true, because from a legal perspective, there's no way you're going to nab him on it. So, you know, people are going to give Trump shit for the, oh, it exonerates point. But the reality is, if there's no evidence for it and you can't go after him with indictment or recommending impeachment or something, then yeah. Like, what else do you want to call that? You want to come up with a new word for it? Fine. Be my guest. Go ahead. But this is so frustrating because, again, he's doing a legitimate victory lap here. Like, why not? If the media was hyper-focused on the emoluments cases against Trump, he can't do what he just did there. And if he did what he just did, it'd be total lies, and you could easily pick it apart a thousand different ways. Because on emoluments, you have two court cases that have proceeded because it's true that he's taken money from Saudi Arabia and Israel, among many other countries, and he's doing their bidding. By the way, not including Russia, by the way. Literally not including Russia. The policies are in the opposite direction on Russia. But, you know, he took hundreds of thousands of dollars from Saudi Arabia at his hotel in Washington, D.C., and then he does favors for them, gives them a multi-billion dollar weapons deal, and allows them to fucking do genocide in Yemen and, and looks the other way as they massacre Khashoggi. So, I mean, there's no way he could wiggle his way out and do a victory lap on emoluments, because he's wrong on emoluments. There's no way he could uh, wiggle his way out if the media was hyper-focusing on the fact that this guy literally committed fraud with Trump University, because he did. He had to pay money on that front. There was a giant fine he had to pay. There's no way he could wiggle out with basically the Southern District of New York, which is going after all these financial crimes. They're totally right about all those crimes. There's so much evidence on that front, which is why I predicted Trump will be indicted when he's no longer president, because that's definitely going to happen, because they have so much evidence on legit crimes he committed. But he can't wiggle his way out of that, because all that's true. But when the media hyper-focused on, oh my God, Vladimir Putin, collusion, 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 he's able to do the victory lap. And listen, it is true. I don't give a fuck what anybody says. It's all laid out in front of you, clear as day. It is true that the media hyper-focused on that because it did give them an excuse for explaining why Hillary Clinton and the Democrats lost in 2016. It did. It gave them an excuse. Oh, no, it's not, it's not that Hillary Clinton was a uniquely horrible candidate and people didn't like her or what she stood for in her neoliberal garbage centrism. It's not that, no. It has to be. The only way this wonderful country can elect such an a evil dingbat like Donald Trump is if there was some sort of foreign interference that was directly helping him and uh, turn the election over and you blame, blame the Russians. Yeah. That, I mean, it's such a preposterous notion. And all of us called it out from day one. All of us who, who knew a thing or two about politics and what was going on in this country called it out from day one. Because, by the way, let's pause for a second and say, what if, what if, now, there was no collusion between Trump and Russia, so they didn't talk about it. But what if it was Russia who gave Julian Assange, um, you know, the emails, and then we learned all the dirt about 
Hillary Clinton in those emails. You know what my response to that is? Whoop-de-doo. Now, why is my response like that? Because you learn things we should have learned. We learned about the DNC rigging the primary against Bernie Sanders. We learned about Donna Brazile giving uh, Hillary Clinton questions before the debate. We learned about Hillary giving speeches where she says, we need totally free and open trade borders, which is basically like NAFTA on steroids. You know, uh, she says, oh, there's a real problem in this country with this bigotry against the rich and the top 1%. Yeah, this, we learned about her saying, I have public positions and private positions. Now, nobody in the media, nobody can tell you with a straight face, oh, the American public had no business knowing all those things that they should have known. They can't tell you that, so what do they do? Deflect. How do you deflect? Don't talk about the substance of the leaks. Talk about maybe who did the leaks. Oh, my God, Russia. Oh, my God, Russia. It's got to be Russia. Uh, Russia. Russia swung the election. If only we knew less about Hillary Clinton and what she was for, then maybe Hillary could have won. Quite an argument you got there. Quite an argument. So it's always been overhyped because it is a deflection uh, from the 2016 election loss for the Democrats. And it allows the Democrats to go, the corporate Democrats to go, who, us? Oh, no, 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 no. We don't need to reform. Because the reason why Trump won is because all of his voters are deplorables, so they're all bad people. So we don't need to get their vote anyway. That's their fault. It's on them. We did nothing wrong. We're precious. We're special. They're all evil. And also because, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin gave him the election. So those are the only reasons we lost. They're all deplorables. And Vladimir Putin handed him the election anyway. So our beloved Hillary Clinton and our beloved corporate Democrats did nothing wrong in any step of the way, ever. And so when the new left is rising up and saying, uh, no, you're wrong. We're doing a progressive takeover of the party. And we're going to make sure we have candidates who support Medicare for all, free college, living wage, so on and so forth. They get to turn around and go, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. You don't have to take over the party. We don't need to go in a different direction. That direction is going to be bad. Our direction is totally correct because I promise you the only reason we lost is not because we suck as candidates and we're totally unappealing, but it honestly is because Vladimir Putin gave it to Donald Trump because there was collusion, and obviously his voters are deplorables anyway, so they're bad people, so it's not our fault. It's on them. Now do you see? Now do you see? Now, again, this doesn't take away in any way, shape, or form from Donald Trump being a corrupt politician. He is that. It doesn't take away in any way, shape, or form from him being a fraud. He is that. And committing fraud, he did that. It doesn't take away in any way from all the things you can go after Trump for that are real as a heart attack, including financial crimes, including a horrible policies he's done. All that is real. But you know what else is real? The dynamic I just explained. So um, shame on pretty much all the media, but particularly CNN and MSNBC on this front, for going all in on an extreme conspiracy theory and the most insane interpretation of that conspiracy theory, because it was just totally disproven. And again, before anybody says, oh my God, but they didn't re- release the whole report yet, Kyle, how can you say that? The whole ball game is no further indictments, no evidence of Trump-Russia collusion, and no recommendation of impeachment. That's the whole ballgame. Because, you know, if their main claim was correct, at the very least, they would have tried to recommend impeachment. But some say, hey, no, you could even indict. You could indict a sitting president. So they would have tried to indict Trump over this. Not happening. So now they can move the goalposts. Fine, move the goalposts. But we see what you're doing. You're moving the goalposts. 
It's not like it's not like you get to say, oh, no, I'm still right. No, you're wrong. Your original claim is totally disproven. Now go ahead and move the goalposts, but we're going to acknowledge that you're moving the goalposts. So anyway, uh, we warned you. Don't say we didn't warn you. We were crystal clear as to how you oppose Trump, how you should oppose Trump from day one, and they didn't listen to us. All right. Let me take a break. When we come back, Biden's campaign is flailing and it hasn't even officially started yet, which is kind of hilarious. So we'll talk about that. And we'll also talk about the breakfast cereal. John Hickenlooper is back in the news for a hilarious reason. Stay right there. We'll be right back.
right, y'all, we back. Let's talk about Uncle Joseph. Ugh. I feel like I've pulled a muscle in my ass cheek. That's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> All right, let me pull up the video for this. Oh, is there a video? No, no video. Wrong. Uncle Joseph Biden's campaign is completely flailing, and it hasn't even officially started yet. Um, I find this, I find this pretty hilarious. Not gonna lie. Biden advisors debate Stacey Abrams as out of the gate VP choice. They think that this is gonna be like a, huh? You you want me to win now, right? I'm an old white man. She's a younger black woman. Diversity. Isn't it great? <laughs> Come on, dude. Like, these are all ploys. He's trying. Now, don't get me wrong. If Let's say Biden had hypothetically in a universe that doesn't exist and won't exist, gets the nomination, and he were to pick Stacey Abrams, okay, cool. But no, he's, he's not even announced his own candidacy yet. And he's floating these trial balloons to see the reaction to it, to see if he should hop in the race. Now, don't get me wrong. He 100% wants to hop in the race. And it looks like he's going to hop in the race. But this is all, like, it's all sad because it's so overly calculated, you know. And actually, I think the next story is even more overly calculated. Look, Biden said to be considering one-term presidency. Oh, Joe, why would you do that? Why would you do that? The one-term, you know, promise never, that never lands like they think it's going to land, as if people are thinking about Biden 2020, and then they're like, if only he made a one-term pledge, then maybe I'd vote for him. Nobody says that. Nobody thinks that. And now, by the way, people weren't thinking about your age, Joe. They really weren't. But now that you bring up a one-term pledge, people are going to go, wait, why do you want to do a one-term? Oh, that's right. He is a little up there in age now, isn't he? Now, look at Bernie, on the other hand. He hasn't brought up a one-term pledge or anything like that. So, you know, at least among the actual people, very few were talking about his age. Obviously, you know, um, in media circles, that's a, that's a different conversation. But among the actual people, nobody's thinking about it. If Bernie said, I'm going to make a one-term pledge, then immediately the topic of conversation would move to, why would you, oh, he's fucking really old, isn't he? So why would you, I mean, I don't know what it is. It might be something that's imprinted in corporate Democrats' DNA, but it's like they always find a way to fuck it up and blow up their advantages. And I'm not kidding about that. You always see it. Biden would have been much better off if he didn't say, I'm thinking about having Stacey Abrams as my VP, and he didn't say, I'm thinking about doing a one-term pledge. If you didn't do that, you would have been much better off than doing that. But instead, he did it, and then he saw the negative reaction, and him and Stacey Abrams came out, and they were like, what? I mean... Did we say that? Yeah, I don't even know who's going to be my my VP. What? I don't know. I I shouldn't do that? Okay, yeah, no, I I don't know. Maybe not her. It's all gimmicky. That's the thing. It's like it's so gimmicky. It's trying to, like, plot your way to the White House using strategy that's overthought. 
Like, just if you want to run, run and just fucking talk about what you believe in. But they can't. Yeah, honestly, one of the things that virtually all the corporate Democrats suffer from is Hillary syndrome. And what, by that I mean they have public and private positions. So they're trying to figure out, what shall my public positions be? And so everything is like overthought out, overcoached, too careful, not real. And we're going to see it. So there's, I mean, I think Biden's going to hop in. And when Biden hops in the race, you're going to have, I mean, the number, uh, this field is growing so much. It's hilarious. I heard, like, basically every other day I hear of a new candidate that I've never heard of before who's running. There's some mayor from, like, Florida who's running who I never heard of before. You know, um, Booty Judge came out of nowhere, mayor from Indiana. And then now in the most recent Iowa poll, he shot up to third place above Kamala Harris. What? (laughs) That's insane. So the field is wide open, but the good news is there are plenty of centrist corporatists in the race. We just got to hope they come as advertised, because if they come as advertised, that clears the path for the lefty. But if one of them manages to put on a convincing charade, well, then that's not good. That's not good at all. So we'll see. But uh, Joe Biden being overly coached, thinking things out too much. Oh, Maybe Stacey Abrams is my VP. And also, I should mention this, by the way. Stacey Abrams 100% should be the governor of Georgia right now. 100%. She got screwed. There was basically election rigging, voter disenfranchisement. I mean, she almost won with the massive voter disenfranchisement effort, okay? So that election was stolen from her. She should 100% be the governor of Georgia. Now, having said that, at a national level, Stacey Abrams is way too conservative for my liking. She's way too centrist, way too conservative. She's not, you know, uh, from the left flank of the party. Again, as a governor of Georgia, wonderful. Wonderful. Because Georgia always has, you know, insanely far-right governors. But um, just like how Beto would have been great, Beto unseated Ted Cruz for uh, the Senate, wonderful. We're all celebrating, even though Beto as president, we're not because he's way too centrist. Kind of a similar thing with Stacey Abrams, which is why Biden would pick her in the first place. Okay, so awesome. I'm an old white guy. We want to diversify the ticket up a little bit. So let's get Stacey Abrams, younger black woman. And then also, hey, her politics happen to kind of agree with me in the sense that they're very centrist. So that's why they did that. But either way, this is overly thought out and a little ridiculous and stop it. Okay, next. Oh, yeah, baby, you guys are going to love this. So John, the breakfast cereal Hickenlooper, um, shoved his foot in his mouth in a way I thought was probably impossible before he did it. I mean, this is so cringeworthy. I cringed for three days straight. Um, I, I cringed so hard, I considered a new nickname for the breakfast cereal. Because John Hickenlooper isn't good enough. I think Creepy John Hickenlooper is the way to go. Or Creepy John, the breakfast cereal Hickenlooper. Kind of getting too long. I got you. And we're not abandoning the breakfast cereal. This is too glorious. We can't abandon that. Um, Look at what he said at his CNN town hall. I don't even know if my commentary adds anything to this story. It's just insane enough as is. Watch. 
Town Hall. We have one more audience question, but before we get to that, we've been looking at uh, your memoir, and you have a lot of interesting stories in that book. One of them is about the time you went to see an X-rated movie <laughs> with your mother. You have the floor, sir. <laughs> Thank you so much for that question. Anytime. Um, I thought it was better to write a book to let people really see who you were and, and the dumb things you did as well as the smart things. And, and where is that on the... <laughs> That's on the dumb side. Okay. <laughs> I, I was the youngest of four, and as I said, my dad died uh, right after I turned eight, and my mother and I had a pretty tempestuous relationship. She was a, just the most amazing person. And, and I went off to college, and, and for the first time, she was alone in the house, and I didn't realize how powerful that was until I got home at Thanksgiving. I promised I called a friend in Philadelphia, and these were ex I didn't know what an ex-movie was. We thought it was a little naughty, but we didn't think it was that bad. I, I, again, you've got to understand, I was 18 years old. And so I came home, and my mother hated to cook. I mean, she, she was just a strong, powerful woman who got stuff done in her own right. And I got home, and she had this huge dinner laid out. And I said, oh, I promised, you know, I promised Jen that we would go to the, the movie theater and see this, this new movie. Uh, you want to come? And I, it's an X movie. I don't know. I, you know, I just, and she, I was sure that she wouldn't say no. I made a mistake. And she said, I'd love to go, because she didn't want to be left alone in the house again. It was a pretty famous movie, too. So I took my mother to see Deep Throat. And, <laughs> and, and, and to her credit, the first scene is, <laughs> I didn't ask the question. But, but I will tell you, I will tell you that my mother, my mother was, uh, I'm, I'm sure she was mortified, and, and I said repeatedly, I think we should leave, I think we should go. And my mother was the kind of person that rarely went to a movie. She thought almost every movie would get on TV. Uh, obviously not this one. Uh, but she was, she really, once she paid, she was going to stay. And, and at the end, she knew that I was humiliated, and as we drove home, uh, and you know how the dashboard in the old cars had a kind of green light? And, and I, you know, she, I asked her, I said, well, that was some experience. And she goes, she says, well, I thought the lighting was very good in the movie. <laughs> I thought I saw a little grin in that green light. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> Bro, what the fuck are you doing? Why would you tell that story in your book? Why would you do that to yourself? Uh you told a story about seeing a porno with your mom. There's no way to talk your way out of that one, bro. There's no way. Even Trump couldn't bulldoze his way out of that one, and Trump is notorious for bulldozing his way out of everything. Even Trump would be like, yeah, well, it, it wasn't good. It was bad. Not good. Not good. <laughs> He tells a long story as if any of the details of the story kind of mitigate how terrible it is. <laughs> well, you know, I was talking to my friend Johnny from Philadelphia, and me and Johnny were going to go see a movie, and I felt bad my mom was staying home. I said, Mom, you want to come with us? She said, sure. And so I, I made a mistake, and there was, you know, at the times of the movie, when dudes were getting blown, I said, I don't know, I think we should leave. And Mom was like, no, it's okay. Oh, no, stop it. Ah! Uh, uh, 
part of this story is that as he told it, I mean, everybody had to immediately think of like, oh my God, I'm mortified at hearing that. It's like if I had seen a porno with my mom. And then the immediate reaction to that is cringing your face into oblivion where it collapses and implodes in on itself. Like, Apparently that's the noise an imploding face makes. He said, I didn't know what an X-rated movie was. I've never heard that excuse before. <laughs> I didn't know what an X-rated movie was. What do you think it was? What do you think? You're going to see Rugrats in Paris or some shit? Is that like, what, what could it possibly be? What could it possibly be? Um, and he says, hey, give me a break. I was 18. That makes the story worse, not better. And it's one thing if you misread it, you didn't know it wasn't X-rated, you thought it was some sort of spy thing, deep throat spy movie or whatever, and you went and you're like 14, and then your mom's like, oh, what? But no, you were 18, and you sat through the whole thing, and it was X-rated, and you say you didn't know what X-rated meant. Uh, John, you know, it's funny because I'm, you guys know me, man. I'm a policy guy. I'm a policy guy 100%, and this has nothing to do with policy, so technically I should overlook it. But there is one argument that I think actually in this rare instance is incredibly poignant, and that argument is judgment. What's your judgment like? Your judgment was so bad that as an 18-year-old, you saw a porn with your mom. <laughs> and the- that's the worst judgment we have. The, we would have John Hickenlooper, the breakfast cereal, would be the most naive president in American history. The most naive president. You know, you'd, you'd have a, he'd have a peace negotiations with the Taliban in Afghanistan, and they'd be like, we brought you a drink. Would you like to try it? We haven't put anything in it, we promise. And he's like, oh, sure. Thank you. I appreciate it. You guys, they got me a drink. Guys, they got me a drink. The Taliban's not so bad after all. Very tasty. What would you call this? God damn, this is the second most naive thing I ever did behind seeing a porno with my mom. Okay, that was hilarious. One more on the breakfast cereal. Okay, Medicare for all now. I love this because of the Bernie supporter in this clip. So John, the breakfast cereal Hickenlooper, was destroyed by a Bernie Sanders supporter here on the issue of health care. And um, what I love about this clip is that the Bernie supporter wasn't even trying. <laughs> You're going to see it, but the Bernie supporter's like, uh, Mr. Hickenlooper, why should anybody support you? And Like, he's talking, like, very relaxed, and he's not trying to get him or anything, but without even trying, he just, like, casually owns him. So take a look, and then we'll discuss. Currently supports Bernie Sanders. Here's your chance. <laughs> All right, so um, in 2016, when Colorado was considering a ballot measure to make the state the first in the country... Uh, to have universal government-run health care. Um, you came out against single-payer health care, saying that, quote, it would be premature to dramatically remake our health care system at this time. Um, do you, how do you expect voters to um, choose you over some of your contenders, like Bernie Sanders, who have had a consistent record of support for single-payer health care over their careers? Well, uh, thank you, and I appreciate that. Uh, 
in Colorado, and one of the things that we've done, I think, as well as any state, I've been able to bring people together who were on different sides of the fence, but in many cases shooting, and find collaborative uh, solutions. And I think you know, we're at almost universal coverage in Colorado. We're about 95% coverage. And we did that by expanding Medicaid, by creating one of the most innovative and successful healthcare exchanges in the, in the country. I don't agree with Senator Sanders, the single-payer approach that you're going to have Medicare for all. I understand that we need a public option. I understand to get to that, uh, to that 100% coverage. I mean, let's, get, let's be honest. Health care should be a right, not a privilege, right? And I, I will do everything I can to make sure I believe that. I've worked for that. I helped start a community health center in 1973. And we said back then, health care needs to be a right, not a privilege. I want to support any way we can get to universal coverage. That should be our first and primary goal. It should be our North Star. But I also recognize that there are north of 150 million people that have private. I mean, how many of you now have insurance through your, uh, you or a family member have insurance through uh, your place of business, right? I mean, there are over 150 million people that, I can't imagine how we would pull them off of health care coverage that in most cases they like. I am more focused on how do we, A, make sure we get to universal coverage, and then make sure that we use, if, if it's Medicare, which I think is a good choice, or even Medicare uh, Advantage, where you have different solutions and opportunities available, maybe more cost-effective even than, than Medicare, how do we make sure that we get to that universal coverage, but at the same time maintain and improve quality and ultimately, look at controlling costs. I mean, in the end, the last 30 years has been a spiral of medical inflation. And whether we look at uh, transparency, if we look at uh, preventative, uh, preventative medicine and healthcare, we've got to be addressing this as a whole country. I like how there, it was just dead silence in the room when he was done talking. <laughs> He's a, he was basically doing, like, nonsense, incoherent babble, word salad by the end of it. He's like, and then what we got to do is transparency is great, and then we have to do preventative also and stuff. And everybody's like. <laughs> Come on, John. What are you doing, bro? So let's walk through this. Again, I love the, the person who asked the question there, Bernie supporter who's not even trying, just asking a substantive question, and then puts uh, the breakfast cereal in a corner. By the way, relatively, this is a random side point here, but I'm like super certain the breakfast cereal wears a toupee. Like, that looks like a toupee to me. Now, I'm not hating, because I actually think it, does, it doesn't look bad, but it's, uh, it looks almost certainly like a toupee. But anyway, I digress. Um, I like how after he was asked a very incredibly substantive, difficult question that puts him in a corner, his response is, um, thank you, I, I, I appreciate that question. Dude, no, you don't. Stop. Like, why do they do that? Why are you doing that? <laughs> thank you for uh, making me look like a giant asshat. I really appreciate it. No, you don't. No, you don't. And this, again, this is a rare instance where I feel like Trump, um, even though he's horrendous in virtually every way, he was a little bit of a breath of fresh air when it came to um, – rhetoric and the typical politician's playbook because if he was asked a question he didn't like he would just be like wrong fake news fake news whereas all these assholes who are overcoached are like 
Well, thank you for putting me in a corner and making me look like an asshole. I really appreciate you being here. No, you don't. You don't have to do that. Okay, anyway. Um, so here's why he's a naive fool. He says, well, you know, hey, man, in Colorado, we had bipartisan collaborative effort. So we worked across the aisle, and we got something done, and it was wonderful. Now, first of all, you're bragging about having 95% coverage. That's not something to brag about. Uh, you're, basically, you're effectively bragging that 5% of people in Colorado do not have health coverage. Every other developed country looks at you like you're insane when you say something like that. Like, we almost did the most basic thing imaginable, giving everybody health care. Almost. Only 5% we missed. That's a lot of fucking people, bro. That's a lot of people. And furthermore, when you say, it's all, well, the reason I'm against Bernie's plan is we've got to be bipartisan and collaborative in our effort. They will not support anything you put forward. How did you not learn this lesson? Were you asleep for all of the Obama years? Obama's final proposal, which we ended up getting implemented, was an individual mandate system, the Affordable Care Act, called, you know, Obamacare, people refer to it as. And the whole idea behind that came from the Heritage Foundation, which is a right-wing think tank. It was Bob Dole's plan. It was Mitt Romney's plan. Newt Gingrich, Gingrich and Chuck Grassley supported this kind of plan. So it, the whole idea is keep the private health insurance system intact, pass a law that says people need to get their own coverage, subsidize people at the bottom, expand med, uh, uh, and expand Medicaid, and do some more regulations. That was the right-wing plan originally. How many Republican votes did he get when Obama proposed their plan, a Republican plan? Zero. They're just not that into you, bro. It doesn't matter what you propose, they're going to say no. So why not hold your own caucus and get the proper policy implemented, which is Medicare for All, which we know covers everybody, and we know reduces cost. Because they're drunk. He's drunk on bipartisanship nonsense. He's drunk on, like, I'm, I'm a reasonable centrist. I'm above the fray, even though we've gotten our ass handed to us for the past three fucking decades. And every Democrat who's been elected, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, were centrists. They were centrists. And we still have a giant problem with our healthcare system. Maybe it's time for radical change. And by radical, I mean catching up to the rest of the industrialized world. Um, and then I find it funny how we talk about how we got 95% coverage in Colorado. And then soon after, he goes, we got to understand, healthcare is a right. Wait, are you bragging about the 95% coverage or are you saying healthcare is a right? Because those are two very different things. In fact, they're diametrically opposed. If you're bragging about 95% coverage, that means 5% of people are not covered, which means when you say healthcare is a right, you certainly didn't implement a policy that reflects that. And you shouldn't be bragging about 95% coverage if you didn't get the right, because you kind of missed 5% that are kind of pretty important. Um, and then I like how his final point is, well, a lot of people have private care, so what are you going to do? What a dumb point, man. That's like saying, well, I mean, the entire economy runs on fossil fuels. What are you going to do? Yeah, you're stuck with fucking fossil fuels. Or not. Or not. Or, you know, there was a time we had fucking Morse code as a main source of talking to each other, and then eventually we graduated, and we got the phone, and then eventually we graduated from that. And, like, this idea of it's how it's done now. So what do you mean? Yeah, it's how it's done now. That's a fucking problem. That's a problem. That's a problem. That's not a self-justifying argument. Like, what do you mean? It's how it's done now. I mean, imagine, go talk to somebody who's helplessly addicted to crystal meth and try to say, hey, let's try to help you try to get your life in order. So, I don't know what you mean, bro. I, do, I take crystal meth. That's what I do. So what do you mean? That's what I do. Yeah, I know, but we're trying to change that and make it better, make everything better. But I do it now. So <laughs> people have health care now. They have private health care now. 
Yeah, and it sucks. It sucks. I mean, we're talking about a system where 32 to 45,000 people die every year because they don't have access to basic health care. We're talking about a system where premiums and, and deductibles and copays are through the goddamn roof. We're talking about a system where you're tied into a job that oftentimes people don't want to be tied into it, but they have no choice. They have to stay there because they can't go and change and look for another job because they need health care and they would lapse, have a lapse in their insurance and they can't afford that. So they have to stay with the job they don't like. John, you're embarrassing. What are you doing? Step aside. All these fucking centrists. Oh my God, I can't take it. They're so out of step and out of touch with what's needed in this country. And it's beyond embarrassing although not as embarrassing as when he said he went and saw a porno with his mom. Okay. Now let's talk about President Trump and what he did with Israel. So President Trump made an absolutely insane decision that's simply not his to make, but he made it anyway. He tweeted it in classic Trump fashion. This is in the Hill. President Trump's decision to recognize Israel's control of the Golan Heights will be formalized Monday when Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu visits the White House, Israel's ambassador to the United States said Sunday. Ambassador Ron Dermer made the announcement at the opening night of this year's American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. Uh, APAC conference in Washington, D.C., after having been asked about the threat Israel faces from Iran and Syria. Quote, if we're going to talk about Syria, I think it's important for me to thank President Trump for recognizing Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, Dermer said to applause from the crowd. I think he deserves a standing ovation, he added, with the crowd following suit by standing to applaud. This isn't a question. The Golan Heights is Syrian territory occupied. Okay, sorry, no, I'm, I'm reading my own notes there as if it's part of the article. Failure of lack of quotation marks. Um, okay. So what I was going to say, uh, on my own without reading it as if it's part of the article, um, this, this genuinely is not a question. So the Golan Heights is Syrian territory that's occupied by Israel. Now for some of the backstory on that in 1981, Israel passed the Golan Heights law, which basically said, yeah, we're, we're taking this. We're taking this. You know, kind of like they do in the West Bank and elsewhere where they build settlements. They're just like, yeah, this is ours. It's ours. Um, but what happened in response is the U.N. stepped up and declared it, quote, null and void without international legal effect. That was United Nations Security Council Resolution 497. They said, no, you're, the, you can't do that. So it's not internationally recognized. That's still Syria. Um, now, when you look at the history of it, it was part of the Ottoman Empire back when the Ottoman Empire existed. Then it was transferred when the Ottoman Empire broke up uh, to French control in 1918. And then uh, when that mandate terminated in 1946, it became part of the newly independent Syrian Republic. So that's, that's what it is. Since 1946, it's been Syria. It's still Syria. And then here's a fact about this that I found absolutely stunning because it flips Israel's logic right on its head. Their argument is, well, no, we have to maintain control of this for defensive reasons, bro. We'd be under attack, bro. We gotta steal land because we're under attack. That's their point. Their whole point is that, sorry, that was really loud. <laughs> but 
Um, since the beginning of the Syrian civil war, the eastern Golan Heights, a hotbed of fighting between the Syrian army and the rebel jihadists that they're fighting. So Israel is taking a position of, no, this is not Syria. We're against Syria, and of course, by extension, the, the Syrian army in this area. So we're going to take this land and de facto align with the jihadists who are fighting the Syrian government. And a story that came out a while ago, which is now put into context and makes a hell of a lot more sense, is that Israel is quite literally treating al-Qaeda fighters who are wounded in the Syrian civil war. You see how politics makes for strange bedfellows? Oh my God, the jihadists are fighting the evil uh, Syrian Assad regime. Well, we're against the Assad regime, and we have land disputes with them, as in we just took their land. Um, so, pff, de facto align with al-Qaeda? Why not? Fuck it. Who cares? Our land. Our land. And thank you, President Dipshit McAdderall, for, saying, for proving it's our land. The United States has nothing but utter disdain for international law in every way imaginable, between what we're doing in Syria, what we're doing in Venezuela, and elsewhere. And it's, it's honestly comical. And when you do this, and you know what happened in response to this also? When Trump did this, he just casually tweeted, yeah, Golan Heights is now Israel. Shut the fuck up, everybody. The entire international community said, that's not true. It's Syrian. It's Syrian. It's not Israeli. It's Syrian. Syrian land occupied by Israel. In response to this, immediately, Russian government comes out and says, okay, you want to play that game? We annex Crimea. That's ours. Now, what rationale, what logic do you have to say that that's not the case when you just did the same goddamn thing for Israel in Syria, in the Golan Heights? Hey, you started this. We didn't start it. You started it. You said, oh, it's their land. And why? Because they're our ally and they just, we determine it is. Well, Russia goes, okay, so Crimea is supposed to be Ukrainian. Now it's ours. Hey, like them apples. You started the precedent. We're just following suit. So there are so many unintended consequences when you have fucking corrupt idiots running the U.S. government and running the, um, the Israeli government. And also, by the way, Netanyahu was indicted on corruption charges, and many commentators have pointed out this looks like an attempt to try to shore up Netanyahu's base uh, because, you know, he's, he's under political scrutiny right now. So by Trump doing this, this hands him a, what's viewed as a political victory in Israel, and uh, it, it kind of takes the focus off of the corruption. So, hilarious. You know, some people thought that Trump would be good on the issue of Israel and would uh, maybe get a peace deal with the Palestinians. And No, Trump is, whoever's the last person in the room pressuring him is who Trump listens to. That's what happens. And it just so happens that, you know, the U.S. and our close relationship with Israel, all we have is a pro-Israeli voices in the administration, the neocon voices, John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, so on and so forth. So Trump is doing everything dead wrong. Okay, let me take a quick break. When we come back, the Democratic establishment is promising to screw the left yet again. And I'll talk to you about the DCCC and exactly how they're doing it. It is incredibly nefarious. Stay right there. We'll be right back.
All right, y'all, we back again. Now, as promised, we will talk about the DCCC screwing Democratic candidates and their uh, insane hypocrisy as well is really important for this story. All right, here we go. Let me set this up for you. So the Democratic establishment is promising to screw the left yet again. This is in The Intercept. They say the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee warned political strategists and vendors Thursday night that if they support candidates mounting primary challenges against incumbent House Democrats, the party will cut them off from business. The news was officially announced Friday morning, paired with a statement on the committee's commitment to diversity in consulting. That's pretty funny. Quote, which obviously is just to give themselves cover, a Democratic political consultant who learned of it Thursday told The Intercept. The consultant asked for anonymity given their relationship with the DCCC and the party organization's professed strategy of blacklisting firms that don't fall in line. To apply to become a preferred vendor in the 2020 cycle, firms must agree to set to a set of standards that includes agreeing not to work with anyone challenging an incumbent. Quote, I understand the above statement that the DCCC will not conduct business uh, with nor recommend to any of its targeted campaigns any consultant that works with an opponent of a sitting member of the House Democratic Caucus, the form reads. Now, I told you from the beginning that uh, these, nobody knows less about politics than Democratic strategists in Washington, D.C., and I stand by that. And uh, really, this is just one giant grift. Uh, This is their job, and they want it to remain their job. They know they all suck at their job. So what they try to do is, uh, you know, they try to grandfather in their own job security by saying, oh, yeah, no, you can't. If you're working with organizations that try to primary Democrats, we're just going to exclude you from the outset, even if they're better candidates. Um, And then I love how they give themselves the cover of, they say, well, we're committed to diversity in consulting. Oh, really? What if the incumbent is a white candidate, a white male candidate, and uh, the challenger is a brown woman of color? What about then? They will immediately flip on their idea, we care about diversity, because it's only it's self-serving. They use it as a shield. So in other words, if there's like a, a centrist black candidate, they'll scream about diversity if a more progressive white male candidate comes up. That's when they scream about diversity. They will not scream about diversity if it's the other way around. If it's, you know, a white candidate who's more centrist and a black candidate who's more progressive who's running. So they use that as a cover. And you guys know this. This is the old, you know, the old Hillary trick. I'm with her. I'm a woman. Therefore, you're going to vote for me, right? I'm, I'm not using this as a cynical trick to try to get elected by weaponizing identity politics for nefarious purposes. That's exactly what you're doing. And we all see through it. But listen, man. They're doing this at the same time. We just heard, there was a story from a few weeks ago, the Democratic establishment wants to primary Ilhan Omar. So look at this. Uh, the DCCC is now saying, you can't, we, we can't work with anybody who's ever uh, been in favor of primarying a Democrat. We've got to only work for the Democratic establishment in every way, shape, and form. And oh yeah, by the way, we can't wait to primary Ilhan Omar. What? Again, it's all self-serving. The real breakdown in the party is the establishment, the elites, the centrists, 
the corporatists versus the insurgent populist left. That's the real breakdown of the party. Everything else, how they try to divide it in other ways, and diversity, and this and that, all nonsense. It's all a mask. It's all a cover for the reality, which is the DCCC and the majority of the incumbents are terrible centrist corporatists, and they want job security, and they will do anything to make that the case, including trickery, deceit, flat out refusing to work with. And this is a direct shot, by the way, at our revolution, at Justice Democrats, at um, a variety of the, the new insurgent left-wing groups, PCCC, not DCCC, PCCC, which is actually progressive. So that's what this is, working families. So they're trying to undermine the left at every turn, and they'll be rank hypocrites in the process. We're against primaries. What's wrong with you? Anyway, can't wait to primary Ilhan, right? We're all down for primary Ilhan. The thing that's so frustrating, guys, is they're disingenuous in their arguments. It's one thing if they just come as advertised. They're like, listen, we're centrists. We're centrists. We're corporatists. It is what it is. Okay, then we can have a real discussion on the merits. Let's do it. But no, they're disingenuous. They say, oh, no, yeah, not see us? Bro, listen, it's just we're all about diversity. And we're, it's a world about protecting the incumbents because they're diverse, bro. That's what it's, it's about, diversity. And because we have a principled stance against primaries. I know that primaries literally make the party stronger, but we're against primaries because primaries are bad. And also, we can't wait to primary Ilhan Omar. You guys are hacks, and it's obvious. So um, I just want to show you here how a reasonable society functions. Look at this. Reuters reported this a few days ago. Breaking, New Zealand bans military-style semi-automatic, semi-automatics and assault rifles. Um, I believe the, the shooting, the mosque shooting, was on March 15th, and this will be fully implemented by April 11th. So not even a month after that happened, there were reasonable measures taken in response. Now, we don't need to get into, you know, the conversation as to, hey, is this the right kind of particular gun regulation? Because that's a long conversation, a long debate, and that's a debate we can have for another day. The, the focus on this story is more about look at how quickly they act in the face of a tragedy. Whereas, compare that to the U.S. And it's a crazy story, day to report on this story because I just learned right before I came on air, now there's been two new deaths related to, I think it was the Parkland shooting, where one of the girls who survived the attack committed suicide, and now I think a father of one of the girls committed suicide. Um, I'm, not, I, I'm not sure if both of them were the Parkland, or one was the Parkland and one was the Newtown Massacre. Literally, we have so many that you get lost and you don't know which, which ones you're talking about at this point. But we have an insane number of gun deaths, 32,000 a year. Now, that includes suicides, to be clear. But if you get rid of the suicides, we still have 11,000 or so gun deaths every year. 
That's from homicides and accidents. So that's way more than any other developed country. Way more. Now, listen, if you are in uh, of the belief, like, okay, I hear you, it's a big problem, but this is not how I would address it. Well, one way that everybody has agreed it makes sense to address it, and this isn't just me speaking, this isn't just the left, this is also the center, this is also the right, including the overwhelming majority of Republicans. Everybody says, it's about 93% in polls, say we should have a universal background checks, a universal background check with strict standards, no exceptions. So, you know, at the very least, after a horrific mass shooting, can we at least get that? Can we at least treat guns like the serious thing that they are? Now, I'm not an anti-gun leftist. I'm not in favor of banning guns. In fact, I consider myself pretty moderate on the issue of guns. But yeah, I mean, I think treating guns as a serious thing like they are, having universal background checks, having maybe tests in place. So, okay, you want to have a gun? Cool, no problem. But you've got to go through this process, man, in the same way that you go through a process when you drive a car. You know, hey, a car's like a weapon. People are like, you got to... There's got to be a process in place. There's got to be a test. There's got to be, you know, updates on that, um, psychological tests and whatnot when it comes to a gun. I think all that would make perfect sense, and that's a reasonable regulation on it. And if you say, hey, the Second Amendment doesn't allow for that, I say to you, read the Second Amendment. It talks about a well-regulated militia. So the word regulated is literally right in the Second Amendment. So for you to argue regulation is unconstitutional is honestly beyond silly. So... Um, it's crazy. New Zealand fixes immediately. Immediately they fix it. Immediately. Whereas us, shootings happen on like a monthly basis, and they're bad. And we can't even get a universal background check or some reasonable standards. We can't get the bare minimum, even when 93% of the country wants it, which says what, by the way? Our country is bought and owned by special interests. The NRA owns the Republican Party, and the NRA is owned by the gun manufacturers, and the gun manufacturers, the last thing they want is new gun regulations, even if they're incredibly reasonable. So, and then they block every kind of attempt at reform. So money in politics really has a, a, a stranglehold on our system where it overrides democracy and what 93% of Americans want. But just compare what's going on in this country to what's happening in New Zealand, and man, that puts it in perspective. <laughs> oh, shit. All right, let's go to Robert Jeffers. We used to talk about this guy. This is almost a little bit of a secular talk throwback, I guess. So Trump-loving pastor Robert Jeffers has some thoughts for us on atheism and religion. And um, this is some old-school fundamentalist silliness. This ought to be good. Welcome back. Well, a shift in religion in this country as a new survey reveals that the number of Americans who claim to have no religion is roughly the same as those who claim to be Catholics or evangelical. Mm. So what does this mean for the future of America? Here to weigh in. Fox News contributor Robert Jeffers, of course, senior pastor at First Baptist Church of Dallas. Good morning. Good morning. What's your reaction? We've been seeing these numbers heading in this direction, but it seems pretty stark now. 
I think I'm going to surprise you this morning by saying I think there's some good news in this new poll, and here's why. You know, 50 years ago, I think people felt compelled to check the Baptist or Catholic or Protestant box, uh, even though they didn't embrace those beliefs personally, just to be thought of as a good person. But as our culture has become increasingly secular, I think people feel more honest to say what they really believe or don't believe, which is why you see the rise in the nuns and even the atheists in our country today. And I think that's a good thing because people need to understand faith has to be personally embraced. As I often say, nobody goes to heaven or hell in a group. We go one by one based on our relationship. So your, 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 your argument is, you know, well, I, I can't remember the verse, but it's either you're hot or you're cold or I'll spit you out of, your, out of my mouth. The idea is that you what? know where you stand. <laughs> See, these numbers are, are more closely correlated with folks who are boldly Catholic or evangelical or, or atheist at this point. Well, I think that's right. And look, this study also reveals that the uh, number one source of people checking nuns, uh, they're jumping ship from mainline denominations. And we know for the last 50 years, mainline Protestant denominations have become more and more liberal in their politics and in their theology. I mean, people say, you know, if what I'm going to hear at church is no different than what I hear on CNN or the Rotary Club, why bother? <laughs> but, you know, the fact is churches like mine that teach the Bible, I mean, we're growing furiously. We cover six blocks of downtown Dallas. We've had two building programs in six years. It's not because people are attracted to me, but in an ever-changing world, people are craving the never-changing truth of God's Word. Well, Pastor, you, know, you, you mentioned politics, and in 2016, evangelicals were a key part of getting President Trump elected, but the numbers are actually changing on that in the opposite direction of what President Trump may want. 23.9% of the country in 2016 identified as evangelical. Today, that number has dropped by about a percentage point to 22.5%. Uh, does that have to do with what you're just talking about, with people jumping denominations, or should this be a concern for the president heading into 2020? Well, the good news for the president this week in the Pew Research poll was that 70% of evangelicals continue to support President Trump. And also in the poll we're talking about today, even though the evangelical number has dropped as a whole, uh, the number of evangelicals turning out at the ballot box is greater than other groups. And it's because evangelicals have deeper convictions. They believe in absolute moral and spiritual truth, and they tend to vote those convictions at the ballot box. Evangelicals believe in absolute moral and spiritual truth, and they vote those convictions at the ballot box. I mean, that is like, you know, the thing that's so frustrating about this is all of the things that they said they cared about during the Clinton years are all the things they totally ignore right now. So what did they say during the Clinton years? They were like, oh, listen, us evangelicals, we're all about, like, moral character, bro. And we're all about the family. That's what we're all about. And we think, like, the worst thing ever is, like, this president getting blown in the White House and, like, cheating on his wife. And that shows something about what he's like in his public life when it comes to policy because of how bad he is in his private life. And so we're against that. We're for, like, wholesome, traditional family values, like leave it to beaver. And then Trump comes along. Trump is like Bill Clinton on steroids. You know, Trump is, he had countless affairs, a bunch of them, stories of them leaked. Um, 
you know, he paid off Stormy Daniels with campaign money to keep her fucking quiet. Uh, he was on tape saying, I grabbed him by the pussy, I don't even wait. Now, again, if Bill Clinton was caught on pussy, he said, oh, you know, uh, I grabbed him by the pussy, <laughs> and I don't even wait. <laughs> Is that a good Clinton impression? I don't know. Um, if he said that, Robert Jeffers and all these evangelicals would be like, ah, impeach this man, he's the worst ever. But Trump does it, and they're like, something happened, bro? Something happened in the news? I don't know. I haven't followed the news, bro. Something happened? <laughs> so the thing is, they're, su- they're such hypocrites because they told you they cared about that stuff. Now under Trump, they actively don't care about it. But beyond that, again, he said um, they believe in moral and spiritual truths. They have convictions. So even if you say, okay, Kyle, whatever, but you don't care about the private life stuff because that's different from the policy stuff. Okay, that's right. But now let's look at the actual policy stuff. These are hardcore Christians, and this is a president who, for example, has increased drone strikes by 432% and got rid of rules of engagement in certain places to make it easier where you kill civilians willy-nilly. So even if you say, well, let's focus on the policy stuff and see how Trump measures up in regards to Christianity, well, certainly if you believe in the majority of the New Testament, he's comically bad. I mean, guys, under his administration, three million people lost health care. And that's directly because of his executive orders on Obamacare. So who would Jesus kick off of health care? Would Jesus have a reduction in the healthcare rolls by three million, or would he? I don't know. Maybe cover everybody. I mean, there's just so many things you could point out. I mean, Trump bragged about signing a pro-torture executive order at a State of the Union address. Like, how do you rationalize that one? Oh, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. Jesus is the life. Jesus is love. Jesus is all about forgiveness. And thou shalt torture Muslims at Guantanamo Bay. That's not in there. That's not in there. And again, Jesus in most of his moods in the New Testament is all hippy-dippy, lovey-dovey type stuff. So it's just so obnoxious. And I, I, I get also annoyed by the fact that he said in the middle there, uh, we believe in the truth of God's word. Reel it in, dude. Like, you can't, I, and I say this to Ben Shapiro too. N- not like literally to him. I've never spoken to him on a one-on-one basis. But I say this about Shapiro. You don't get to pretend like you're the logic and facts guy and also like actually be a believer in religion. Can't do it. Can't do it. It makes no sense. I believe in logic and facts, which is why I, I cling to an old school Bronze Age books book with demonstrable falsehoods. Same with Robert Jeffers and all these evangelicals. We believe in the truth of God's word. We believe in the truth of the Bible. Oh, you do? What's your take on the part where uh, they allude to the earth being flat and sailing to the four corners of the earth? What about that? What do you say to the part that mentions seven-headed dragons? What do you say to that? What do you say to the Noah's Ark story where he gets two of every animal on an ark that he made that was bigger than any ark that it was possible to make at the time based on their engineering skills? And he was able to get two of every animal. So somehow he got 
the climate right for the animals from hot climates and the climate right for the polar bears who need a cold climate. He somehow got mosquitoes on the fucking, and he got the mosquitoes to reproduce. And somehow, some animals didn't eat the other animals. But you're telling me the Bible, this is a serious thing. What about the stuff where it's a, an abomination to wear a mix of two different fabrics? Have you ever worn two different fabrics? What about the stuff where it's an abomination to eat shellfish? Have you ever eaten shellfish? They say things like, we believe in the truth of the Bible. And that's like, talk about like repeatedly raping the word truth. They just do it. That's what that is. You rape the word truth. That's what you just did. So you can't say you're the logic and facts people and then turn around and say, and I also believe in religion. And anybody who doesn't see through that, you're pretty embarrassing. Okay. Next story. This will make you viscerally angry. And it should. It absolutely should. Oh, by the way, if you haven't seen it yet, Corn and I did the tour. You should probably check it out. I think you'll enjoy it. We ate three of every... Uh, we ate three of every... Three of every, what am I saying? Wait from every fast food place. One or two things from each of every fast food place. And uh, it was quite an experience. And uh, I have to say, when I was done with that, I never wanted to eat fast food again. <laughs> anyway, all right. Here we go. So this story made me uh, pretty viscerally angry, and I'm sure it will do the same to you. New survey data shows that 11.4% of U.S. adults did not take their medication as prescribed in an effort to reduce costs. The survey from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention finds that those adults age 18 to 64 either skipped doses, took less medicine than prescribed, or delayed filling a prescription because of the cost of the drug in the past 12 months. In addition, the data shows 5% of adults asked their, doctors, their doctor for a lower-cost medication than the one initially prescribed. The data comes as attention is intensifying on high drug prices, and members of both parties call for action. The AARP highlighted the data on Tuesday. This is unacceptable. No one should have to ration their treatment or skip medication, the group wrote on Twitter. The situation is worse for people who are uninsured. Among the uninsured, 33.6% did not take the medication as prescribed in an effort to lower costs. I want to reiterate, this is not like anything elsewhere in the developed world. It's not like anything elsewhere in the developed world. In the developed world, in other places, you're sick, you need help, you get help. You need medication, you get the medication. End of conversation. That's it. That's it. Um, you know, some places, depending on which developed country you're talking about, some places there's like a $10 or $20 copay for something, and then that's for all the medication. It doesn't matter how expensive the medication is. The medication could cost fucking $14,000, and it's covered by taxpayers. You only have to pay the $10 or $20. Some places it's free. You just go and you get the medication you need. You don't have to pay anything. Now, compare that to the U.S., you just heard it. 11.4%. I can't take the medication and the doses I'm prescribed because I can't afford it. And 33.6% of the uninsured 
I can't take my medication as prescribed because I can't afford it. And you have to remember something. In many instances, universities in this country, funded by taxpayers, do the research and development. And then the pharma companies swoop in, buy the rights to it, and then sell it back to you. So you pay for the research and development of these drugs. And then when it comes, you're charged again by a pharma company that bought the rights to it and is selling it back to you for profit. This is insanity. It's insanity what we're doing in this country. This fact alone is a national scandal and it's a national emergency. And as you guys know, this will be pretty much completely ignored by mainstream media and not talked about on par with the things that they pretend are scandals. And um, this is why people, you know, give Congress like a 18% approval rating and they hate the government and they say the government's corrupt because they know the government's working for the big pharma companies and the for-profit health insurance companies and Wall Street and the military industrial complex and not looking out for their best interest. Because if the government was looking out for our best interests, it could never have happened in the first place. In one of the richest countries in the world, one out of 10 people can't afford their medication and have to cut back on it to survive. And remember, that's deadly for a lot of people and a lot of medication. That's deadly. We covered a story not too long ago. They had to cut back on insulin. Some lady did, and she died. This needs to be addressed immediately. It needs to be addressed immediately. We need to be able to negotiate with pharma. The government needs to be able to negotiate with pharma for better prices like every other developed country has. And it should be covered. It should just be covered under Medicare for All system. Your, your treatment, your pills, because that should be off the table. Like when you're sick, you should get help, and you shouldn't have to worry about, oh, I can't afford it, or oh, I might go bankrupt, or um, oh, my God, I have to cut back on it. That's insane. shouldn't be the case, and it's a very simple thing to prioritize. All right, now we will dock this bad boy by talking about Trump's new U.N. ambassador pick and then the biggest lessons Dems can learn from Trump. That's a really important segment. Definitely don't miss that last segment, but let me do the second to last one first. So the good old boys club is at it again, I guess in this case good old boys and girls club. Um, Listen to what Trump's U.N. ambassador pick has been up to. According to a report from Politico, the husband of Kelly Kraft, who has been tabbed by President Donald Trump to replace Nikki Haley at the United Nations, has been a big-time contributor to a majority of the Republican senators who will need to approve her nomination. The report states Kraft and her wealthy husband, coal magnate Joe Kraft, gave Senator Marco Rubio $5,400 for his 2016 primary and general election campaigns and supported him for president before he dropped out, at which time they switched their allegiance to Trump. Additionally, the nominee also donated the maximum allowed, 2700 to the campaigns of Todd Young and Ron Johnson that same year. According to Politico, Joe Kraft's contributions to Republicans are nothing new, and he has been giving millions or given millions to Republican causes over the years while being a prolific fundraiser for the GOP. Quote, the couple has donated to the Republican campaign arms of the, Senate and, of the House and Senate, as well as to political action committees, with higher contribution limits 
and to campaigns for other members of the Senate Republican Conference, Politico uh, reports before noting, quote, but the disclosures show how the Crafts concentrated their donations on influential Republicans, oftentimes fighting tough races, who would later send Kelly Craft to Ottawa as ambassador as the Trump administration's representative to one of the country's top trading partners. So Kelly Craft and her husband are billionaires, and they've been giant contributors to all various Republican causes through dark money channels, through uh, traditional methods and direct channels of funding campaigns and whatnot and individual contributions. And um, this is the way Washington, D.C. works. Now, you're unsurprised by this at this point, but I still feel like it's worth noting because it's disgusting and it needs to change. But the same thing with Betsy DeVos, billionaire, fundamentalist Christian. Well, look at that. She got picked to be the head of the Department of Education. What? How she qualified? She's not. Not at all. Not by any stretch of the imagination. But she's rich. And she funded Republicans. And they said, okay, yeah, we got you. Now, don't go crazy here and think, oh, my God, this is solely a Trump thing. No, it's actually not. This is a Washington thing. Barack Obama had many in his cabinet picked by executives at Citibank. It's an uncomfortable fact. It's totally true. So this is the way the system works. And this is, uh, it shows you how the idea of a meritocracy is laughable. We don't live in a meritocracy. We live in more of a kleptocracy or an oligarchy. So we have moneyed interests, elites, who... um, They think they're in the position they're in because they're just so much smarter than everybody, but the reality is no. 60% of the wealth in this country is inherited. So, you know, all these rich assholes oftentimes are just getting it from their parents and their parents' parents, and they're part of this class. And so they buy influence, and money talks. And this is how it manifests. And this is why you see the worst assholes in the world who were part of Wall Street destroying the economy are then the assholes who turn around and they make it in the public sector and they set the rules that continues to allow Wall Street to continue to screw all of us. And that's just one example, but there's callous examples. But you get the point. The point is the entire system is run on corruption. The entire system is run on elites patting each other on the back and screwing over everybody else. And there's no argument for this person to be in this position. But she's likely going to get it. So we can change it. We can change it. We just have to have clean elections by law. So no more publicly financing of elections, um, no no more favoritism and revolving door and things of that nature. And so we need a strong anti-corruption bill passed in Congress as well as a constitutional amendment to get money out of politics because you can't just do it through a law because the Supreme Court already ruled that money in politics is basically a right. So, um, you know, chances of that happening are very slim, but we need to keep fighting and we need to get to the point where it does happen. At least we change the game to this point in terms of how Democrats, the the populist left is raising money. They do it almost all through small dollar donations. They don't take corporate PAC money. Many of them don't do big money bundling, although some do. Those are the corporatists who are masking themselves as if they're populist left. But that's a short-term fix. The short-term fix is only small dollar donations. The long-term fix is we need to get clean elections by law implemented.
So let's talk a little bit about um, the Democratic primary and how it's going to unfold. And what I think the biggest lesson of the 2016 election is and how I might even say all of the Democrats have not learned that lesson. Maybe, 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 although I'm not sure, there's a handful of Democratic um, primary contenders who have learned this lesson. But honestly, my gut instinct is that none of them have learned this lesson. And it kind of shows in a variety of ways. So what's the old textbook? What's the old playbook that the Democrats use? Well, they say, well, Bill Clinton's our best model of success. And what happened with Bill Clinton? Bill Clinton came up and said, me? No, no. I'm not a far lefty. I'm not with that wing of the party. Because back in the 70s, for example, um, the face of the left in this country was uh, hippies who never shaved and never took a bath wearing tie-dye shirts uh, at concerts and doing LSD and smoking weed all the time. And so there was a cultural perception of the left as like disorganized and dumb and not interested in actually improving anything and just pie the sky idiots. And so Bill Clinton comes along generation or two later, decade or two later, and he goes, that's not me. Yes, us Democrats have been getting our ass kicked at the ballot box, and it's been like that for a while. And I'm here to tell you, I'm a new kind of Democrat. I'm above the fray. I'm a centrist. I sometimes agree with Republicans. I sometimes agree with Democrats. And I'm going to find the most reasonable answer on every single issue. And I'm triangulating like a motherfucker, but it's okay because you're going to like me because I'm better than the competition. And Bill Clinton won. And listen, at the time in 1992, that was the winning strategy. You know, you couldn't win as an anti-corruption populist crusader in 1992 because the, it, it, we weren't in that era yet. The country hadn't gone through, you know, the 2008 Great Recession and Wall Street collapse, and the country hadn't gone through Bush's wars that he put on the credit card. The country hadn't gone through so many of the things that they've gone through. So it was just the time for a Bill Clinton-like politician, and he won, and he won. Now, fast forward, Barack Obama largely grabbed from that playbook. He deviated a little bit, but he mostly stuck to that same script. And, uh, you know, he won on an anti-George W. Bush backlash vote, effectively. But really, Obama governed very similar to Bill Clinton in a very centrist way. And the old Democratic strategist playbook, you saw it embodied perfectly with Hillary Clinton in 2016. And we learned in 2016 that that era, that philosophy had died, died a long time ago. And there was no bringing it back. So what did Hillary do? Well, me in the primary, I'll kind of pretend like I'm a progressive. And then, ooh, look at that. Now I'm in the general, and now I'm going to sprint to the center, and I'm going to say, who's my VP? Tim Kaine. Boring-ass centrist white dude. What are my positions? Well, I'm going to do what Chuck Schumer said, and I'm going to appeal to the middle of the country, and for every vote we lose, you know, some Rust Belt factory worker who got their job outsourced, it's okay because we're going to get two suburban voters who are moderate Republicans to vote for us. How'd that work out? You failed. You failed miserably. Now, you would think that in 2020, everybody would be like, all right, we got it. (laughs) We got it. No more third-way, new Democrat, triangulating, center-of-the-road nonsense. 
So in other words, the playbook is no longer run to the left in the primary, sprint to the center in the general, be above the fray, and be a compromiser and a bipartisan person. You would think they would get it. They don't get it. I'm looking at, at, at the rhetoric around, uh, going on in the Democratic primary, and a lot of it I'm cringing at. Now, even the good candidates, even like Bernie, for example, I see a lot of stuff from Bernie where I'm like, you're trying to placating them. So, for example, Bernie with the Russia issue. He's been hard on, on oh, yeah, Russia, wag my finger at you, yada, yada. And then what happened? The, the, his critics still accused him anyway of being like somehow under Putin's thumb also. You know, and you're, you're going to see this. You're going to see, no matter how much Bernie tries to placate his critics, he's going he's gonna to not effectively do it because the nature of a smear is there is no placating it. It's a smear. <laughs> so it doesn't matter if you're crystal clear and you half agree with these people. They're going to go, I don't care. You're still wrong and bad and evil, and I'm going to explain that. So... What is the number one political lesson and the playbook that we learned from Trump, which actually is correct and I think works, and I think it it has no error. It's timeless. What we learned from Trump is go on the offense. It works. That's what we learned from Trump. So I don't care where your critics are coming at you. They're coming at you from the left. They're coming at you from the right. Respond. And what Trump did well is he's a counterpuncher. He usually doesn't throw the first punch. I know people might go, whoa, really? No, seriously, go back and look at all his views and the back and forth. It's almost always, somebody says something to me and I'm going to counterpunch you, which allows him, it gives him a little more leeway in being the asshole that he is because at least he gets to say, I, I didn't start it. They did. I'm counterpunching. So what I want all the Democratic politicians to do is you have to learn that you never go on defense. You should always go on offense. They don't set the narrative. You set the narrative. And you need to be aggressive and clear on that front. So uh, I'll just give you one example from Trump, because I think it's the perfect example, and I think it illustrates everything perfectly. When Donald Trump was caught on tape saying, I grab him by the pussy, I don't even wait. And everybody's like, oh, that's it. All of mainstream media was like, oh, he's over. He's going to drop out like today, right? Obviously. All the Republicans are going to call for him to drop out. He's going to drop out. It's basically it's Hillary Clinton's election. What's going to happen? We don't know. It's going to be scrambled. Ted Cruz is going to step in at the last moment to run against Hillary Clinton. These are the conversations that were happening at the time. And everybody's like, oh, he's done, he's done, he's done. And all of mainstream media, pff, done, 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 done. The, night of that, the next night was a debate. First of all, he released like a hostage video the first night. And he's like, yeah, I'm not proud of it, but it was all talk. And talk is one thing, and actions are another thing, and stay tuned until tomorrow night. Okay, boom. Fast forward to the next night at, at the debate. Before the debate, Donald Trump calls a press conference. He has all of Bill Clinton's accusers at the press conference where they relentlessly accuse Bill Clinton of, oh, my God, he raped me. Oh, my God, he was a sexual harasser. Oh, my God, look at what he did. Oh, my God, this is so terrible. And then when he's asked the question in the debate, what does he do? Immediately reframes it and goes, listen, am I proud of what I said? No. But what I said is just words. What Bill Clinton did was action. And what Bill Clinton did was horrible. And uh, I think he needs to apologize. I I don't need to apologize. He needs to apologize. Everybody's like, what? Now, why was that so smart? It was smart because he took an issue that was a sure political loser for him, And he reframed it, and he went on the offense, and then he made it a wash. So before it was, ah, Trump's done, obviously. Got him, got him, got him. And then he reframed it, flipped it, and made it so that all the pundits after were like, well, I mean, there are accusations against Clinton, and that's true. 
And so it went from sure political loser to a wash to, and then once it's a wash, it's going to be out of the news cycle. Then once it's out of the news cycle, you get to move on and talk about other stuff. So what Democrats don't do well is if there's any attack from them from any direction, from a, a centrist direction, from corporate media, from Republicans, or from their left, they don't, they don't know how to handle that. They don't know how to take a criticism, reframe it, go on the offense, slap down a criticism, and then move on. And that scares me. That scares me because you, the one, that's the number one political rule, which is the rule of the new era, which they don't get. Even the good candidates, I don't think, get it. And they need to get it. There's no reason to apologize. There's no reason to grovel. There's no reason to half agree with the smear merchants coming after you, no matter where they're coming at you from. All there's room for is strength and offense. And that's how you bulldoze and set the narrative yourself. You control the narrative. That's why I'd say to all these Democratic politicians who are running for president in 2019, you control the narrative. They're going to try to set up a narrative and want you to fall in line with it. No, no, no. You reframe it. You control the narrative. And again, this is not Democratic playbook. says nothing about offense, defense, and all this. It says nothing about any of that. All it says is, yeah, run to the left in the primary, run to the right in the general, and be overcoached, basically, and be, stay on your talking points. That's all it says. And the playbook is dead and gone and stupid and dumb, and it's from a previous era, it's, it's archaic, primitive. Well, now we're in the new era, and I'm trying to help you guys because I, I see this stuff coming from a mile away, and I've seen it play out in front, and there's a reason why all my predictions, the overwhelming majority of my predictions come true. So I'm trying to warn them, and that's what this segment is about. You have to understand the new era we're in. It's an anti-corruption era, a pro-populist era, a no BS era, a no talking point era. You have to just cut right through and go on the offense no matter what comes at you. So Bernie, especially for Bernie, you don't need to placate the smear merchants, the ones that will hit you on Russia, the ones that will hit you on identity politics, and all he's done so far is placate them. <laughs> That's all he's done. So it. Instead of treating everybody like a good faith actor, they're not. They're just not. So treat them like they're not. And that helps you. Now, some people might say, well, Kyle, what you're missing in this analysis is the, the right-wing response to going on the offense versus the left-wing response to going on the offense. To which I, resp- I reply, but we haven't had Democrats who go on the offense, and we also haven't had Democrats who win. How about you try it? How about you try, as a Democrat, going on the offense, reframing the narrative, being aggressive, and see what happens. I guarantee you're going to love the results. Because it turns out, in some ways, even though the American people are right on the policy issues, and they're substantive on these issues, and they know what the right things are that will help them, in some ways, the tone, the demeanor of a campaign cuts through a lot of the stuff, cuts through a lot of the nonsense. And people react, in some ways, Like, you know how animals can sense, oh, he's in a good mood, he's in a bad mood. People see that. They see when, you know, a candidate is staggering from a smear attack or a candidate is staggering from not knowing how to respond to something. They see it. So you can eliminate all that and just override it all with confidence and and aggression and offense. And it works. And, you know, and and the crazy thing is this. Even though corporate media will talk shit about you for doing it, it doesn't matter. Because corporate media is not your audience. The people are your audience. Corporate media is full of shit. The people are your audience. And the people will like it, even though corporate media will try to get you to fall in line and don't do that. You know, but it works. And they'll call you Trumpian, and they'll call you this, they'll call you that. It doesn't matter. Your audience is the people, not the corporate media. So that's my main advice to all the Democratic candidates. 
Go on the offense, reframe debates. Don't take any BS. I don't care who's critiquing you, left, right, center. If a smear merchant is smearing you, treat it as a smear. Don't placate it. Oh, yeah, I'll walk that fine line in the middle or something. No. That doesn't work. I promise you that doesn't work. And even though Trump is an idiot and a clown, he's stunning. And if he didn't do that, imagine Trump didn't do that. Imagine he didn't counter, counterpunch on the grabbing by the pussy tape and he didn't have the press conference with all the, he would have probably lost the election. I'm not kidding about that. He probably would have lost. He, but he decided, no, I'm not going to take this laying down. And by the way, you know who really came up with that strategy? I think it was Steve Bannon who did. And from a strategy perspective, that's brilliant. It is. It is what it is. I mean, he's a, he's a virulent bigot and a bad person. But, and none of the strategists are smart enough to say what I'm saying right now. None of them. None of them get it. None, the last thing these strategists are is empirical and objective. What I do is I just look at objectively what works and, and okay, what can we learn from that? These guys have nothing but theory. They're up their own ass and they're in their own head. Well, yeah, I think maybe this will work even though it hasn't worked for the past three fucking times. Let's try that. You're wrong. And it's embarrassing. You need to stop it. It's a new era. Let's act like it. Okay. That'll do it, babe. That'll do it, y'all. We're done. Love you guys. We will talk to you. I, I, I don't know if there's a Kylan Corrin tomorrow because he's still in New York somewhere. So who knows? Um, but anyway, we'll see. Worst case scenario, I'll see you Thursday. Love you guys. Talk to you soon. Um, try not to be too annoyed by my gloating over the, <laughs> over the Mueller report. But I had to do it. What was I going to do? Not take credit for getting it right? I got it right. What do you want me to tell you? Anyway, love you guys. I'm out. Peace.